Well, well, well. Here we are. Don, you're here for our last lesson <laughs> in uh, part one of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, well, well. Lecture 12. Now, it doesn't mean we've just been 12 weeks in our studies because we've doubled up a couple weeks when there have been things that have been too important to go over in one week. But here we are, the celestial city, at last. I think uh, in other listings of these things, I have entitled it Home at Last. Home at Last. But first, by way of introduction, <clears throat> I, before I even talk about the pilgrims here, I have a little note at the top of your sheet. It says this, in our study thus far, we have encountered over 60 characters. You guys, that's over 60 characters, and I did not include in that title individuals like the evangelist or help or the interpreter, individuals which are obviously representing God's, God's part in these things. Uh, nor did I really include uh, Christian and uh, faithful and hopeful in that list either. But apart from them, over 60 characters. Now, I have in my hand right here, uh, this is a couple pages, like five pages, Characters and Places in Pilgrim's Progress by a man named John L. Musselman. Uh, he made this, he put this list together in 2016. And it's a good review sheet and all. 60 characters. You guys, most of those characters did not end up in the celestial city. Most. Dare I say the vast majority of them. Although many of them thought they were headed there. Some of them were running the opposite way. But some of them thought and we will meet one of the most tragic examples of that this morning before we're done. And by the way, before I go any further, I sincerely hope that none of you skipped to the last sentence of the book before you read the last chapter. Why would we do that? Why would you die? Because some people go to the end of the story to see how the mystery was solved. You know, I hope you didn't. But by way of introduction uh, this morning, the Puritans, three Puritans pictured here, they are, and you can see in your notes, John Owen, Richard Baxter, Richard Baxter of Kidderminster, and of course, John Bunyan. Look at the paragraph, or a couple paragraphs that I've written to you at this point. In his excellent booklet entitled, The Story of the Pilgrims, Errol Hulse named three Puritans who lived at the apex of the movement and whose lives offered a present-day definition of what it was. Quote, Puritanism is John Owen for profundity and reliability in theological formulation. It was Richard Baxter for evangelistic and pastoral zeal. And it was John Bunyan for compelling, powerful preaching. We have learned much about John Bunyan over the past 12 weeks or so. Let me tell you a little bit about Richard Baxter, born in 1615 in Roten, Shropshire, England. All his life, he thought he was dying, and often he came close. 
He worked hard in spite of chronic pain from the age of 21 until the end of his life at 76. He wrote more than 200 books and booklets. Perhaps his most famous book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, was actually begun as his own funeral sermon, written when he had been ill for months, expected to die, and was far from home. As he wrote, he fixed his thoughts on the believer's eternal rest in Christ. What began as a sermon grew into a book and was first published in 1649, when he was only 34. In 1648, Bunyan was married to his first wife, Mary. This book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, became one of the most widely read books of the century. You know what? I happen to have a copy of that book right here. And some of you might recollect the fact that it wasn't too many, day, too many years ago that we undertook a series in this Sunday school class called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. It was one of my favorite studies ever. The Saint's Everlasting Rest, written about the same time as Pilgrim's Progress. Every genuine Christian pilgrim needs to think about what lies ahead, what awaits us at the end of our journey. We do well to think about it in the light of Holy Scripture. While we are not told everything we may want to know, God has revealed to us everything we need to know how we can be sure that we're ready, how we should live in the meantime, and what to expect when we leave this world. Two of the most important characters in the New Testament are Peter and Paul, of course. Although we're not given the accounts of their deaths in Scripture, we're told how they both approached death. For Peter, and I want you to open in your Bible with me to First Peter, uh, excuse me, to Second Peter, Second Peter. And very early in his second letter, Peter writes these verses, and you will see very much what Peter's perspective is on, on death. Beginning in verse 10, this is Second Peter chapter 1, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Uh, Peter writes a reminder to them at this point. A reminder which is kind of motivated by the fact that Peter knows that his death is not far off at the time that he wrote this. And then for Paul, uh, perhaps a passage that we are a little bit more familiar with in 2 Timothy, 
which is the last letter that Paul wrote. Second Peter was the last letter that Peter wrote, but he only wrote two epistles, so that's, that's not as much of an issue as it is with Paul, who wrote 13 letters, and Second Timothy was the last of those. And in chapter 4, the familiar verses, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Familiar verses. The prospect that both Peter and Paul had as death approached as death approached. Well, uh, both of them were aware of the approach of their deaths. Neither of them regretted what was ahead. Neither of them regretted what was ahead. And, and I trust that's the same for us. We don't regret what's ahead. We don't. I, I trust that as you know, as many of us are, are here. Let's get Libby settled here. Um, you, you know, some of us approach these matters uh, age-wise um, a little bit more than others. Uh, no regrets. No regrets. Uh, we're going to see some things in this chapter that are going to point us in this direction. There are some other passages that could be read, but I think we had best move along here. Time will, time will fly. This is another uh, slide of Richard Baxter's book here. If you look at this, and this may be a little bit difficult for you to read at first, and so you make a little bit of an adjustment. It's like reading the Declaration of Independence the way it was first written. Uh, this is the letter S. This is the letter S. So you make those changes. The saints' everlasting rest, or a treatise, of the blessed state of the saints in their enjoyment of God in glory, wherein is showed its excellency and certainty, the misery of those that lose it, the way to attain it, the assurance of it, and how to live in the continual, delightful uh, foretaste of it by the help of meditation. And then, down the end here, written by the author for his own, for his own use. In the time of his languishing. How old was he? 34. 34. Very good listeners there. 34 years old when he thought his life was about to end. When God took him off all public employment and afterwards preached in his weekly lecture, and so on. It's amazing, these whole books have such a long, long title and then subtitles on and on. need a long title page for that. Well, here we go. Here we go. The country of Beulah. We sing about Beulah land, don't we? We sing about Beulah land. What was the country of Beulah like for Christian and hopeful as they are now? 
coming to heaven. Well, in this picture, before we put any statements on the board, and you have the statements in front of you already, th this looks like a very pleasant land, according to this depiction, doesn't it? Very, very pleasant land here. Beautiful flowers there. I see angels over here. I see angels up here. I see a city off in the distance here. These things were told about Beulah land. The air was very sweet and pleasant. The sun continuously shined. This was the borderland of heaven within sight of the city. You could see the city in the distance. Shining ones commonly walked there. Shining ones is the word for that Bunyan uses for angels here. They, Christian and hopeful, they became heartsick with longing to be home. Heartsick for home. I started writing a poem about that months ago now. Never finished it. Probably in my file of unfinished stuff that will be burned soon. <laughs> you know, be finished off. But to be heartsick for home, not just our home where we have our roots right now, but to be heartsick for our eternal home. That's what they felt while they're here. In Beulah Land, one of the characters that Bunyan points out particularly is the gardener. The gardener. The pilgrims were told that the goodly vineyards and gardens there in Beulah Land were the kings planted for his own delight and also for the solace of pilgrims, like Christian and Hopeful. They talked much in their sleep. When you read this chapter, did you, did you kind of smile when you read that? That when Christian and Hopeful fell asleep, they talked in their sleep sometimes? You ever known anybody who talked in their sleep? Well, probably your spouse does <laughs> on occasion. Not making any revelations. They talked much in their sleep, and the gardener said that it was the nature of the grapes there that made them talk in their sleep. Interesting, that is. Two men in bright raiment. Two men in bright raiment. Can you see their picture? It's a little hard to see, isn't it? That is, that is bright raiment there. That's well, a good, good picture for this. On the way to the city, the reflection of the sun on the gold of the city was so bright that their eyes needed to be protected. When I read that again this morning, when I was rereading these pages, I got a kick out of that because Bunyan gives no explanation about how their eyes were protected. I mean, how do you protect your eyes from the sun? Lots of times you just go like this to protect your eyes from the glare and the brightness of the sun. In addition to that, many of you wear sunglasses. sunglasses. How many of you own a pair of sunglasses? Most of you own a pair of sunglasses. I can't imagine, though, Christian and hopeful walking as part of the journey with sunglasses on. But the point is, the glare of the glory of the city that they're headed to, and which is within sight, is so bright and glorious. They needed to shade their eyes. Wow. 
Two men in bright raiment told them, you have but two difficulties more to meet with, and then you are in the city. Now, in your notes, and you're on the second page of your notes already, I haven't even turned my page yet, and you're almost in the middle of the page there, what are the two difficulties more to meet with? I, I tell you what, I read and I read many times through this looking for a clear identification of what the two difficulties would be. I, I think I could have identified the first one fairly easily, but it's like reading a book when the author writes first, and then he says something, and boy, I'll tell you, when he writes that, I am looking for second, and maybe third, and maybe fourth, depending on the number of things that he gives there. And if I don't find that, I find it to be quite frustrating. <laughs> well, looking for the two difficulties that remain, and there's not much of their trip that remains here, not much of their trip. And so I have, rather than giving you two blanks, I've given up at your council blanks to fill in. <laughs> they are listed here. Number one, death without. And number two, unbelief within. And we're going to read a little bit more about both of these. Death without. How is that represented in the story? The river. The river. The river. There's going to be a river to cross. And we're going to read about the crossing of this river. And to make a long story short right now, it was not an easy crossing for Christian, was it? When you read it, it was not an easy crossing for Christian. It wasn't. I remember many years ago when I was teaching this for the first time on Wednesday nights, and it was just about, right about the time that the Revelation Media uh, presentation of Pilgrim's Progress was coming out, and a number of us went to see it, and I still like it very much, very, very much. I have problems with a couple things in it, but I like it very much. But I remember the uh, young son of one of the individuals in the class had a question for me, and that question was, why did Christian commit suicide at the end? Well, the way it's represented in the movie, if you have seen that uh, animated uh, presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. It's like he it's like he dives into a wave. It's almost like it's almost like I see in the representation of what was it, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think, when Reepicheep that ring yes. a bell with anybody? Yeah. Reepicheep, the the noble mouse, dives he takes his coracle, you know, and goes up the face of a wave. It's kind of, kind of hard to represent, but that kind of brings us to the second of those two things. The first thing is death without, but the second is unbelief within. We'll see a little bit more about that in a minute here because let's go to the river. Let's go to the river. Uh, as I chose this to be our picture to use here, it almost looks like a baptismal service in the river. That's not what, it's, that's not what it is representing here. The river. There was no bridge, no bridge. And the river was deep. 
There was only one other way over the river, but only two men had been permitted to tread that path. Enoch and Elijah. How did Enoch go to the celestial city? We're just told God took him. Enoch walked with God and he was not. That's it. That's the simple explanation there. God just took him like a rapture. How about Elijah? Elijah was caught up in uh, a whirlwind. Chariot of fire and horsemen and horses of fire. They're the only two exceptions to the crossing of the river. Up to this point in history, everybody's had to cross that river. But then everybody, everybody. Both pilgrims began to be despondent. Christian, the more so. Uh, one of the things, and I, I boy, I hope I wrote this in the notes here, uh, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to miss this. Um, we were, they were told that the easiness or difficulty of crossing this river was going to depend upon their faith, so that. The water be, would be like shallow water if their faith was strong at this point, and it would be like deeper water if their faith was struggling. And, and is it shocking to realize that uh, as Christian entered the water, he began to fear and sink, and great darkness and horror fell upon him? Is that kind of is that kind of disappointing to read about Christian? May I remind you that. This allegory that Bunyan writes is in many respects a representation of his own life and the struggle of his own life and the struggles that he had. He had troublesome thoughts of the sins he had committed both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. Now just think about that. There's not a single person in this room that can't relate to that. What what if the number all of a sudden all of a sudden lit up on your forehead of the number of sins that you've committed? Your forehead's not big enough. That's what I want to say. Neither mine. It's not. And you know what? The devil takes great delight in being the accuser of the brethren, in stirring up the memories, the thoughts of these things. You know? Don't you sometimes wish you could just wipe, wipe it out completely, or somebody could hypnotize you and say it's all gone? It's not. It's interesting at this point when Christian is having these, these troublesome thoughts and everything that, that Bunyan mentions again the hobgoblins. <laughs> he uses that term hobgoblins again. That's why it was such a great title for uh, Douglas Bond's book that he wrote about John Bunyan, uh, The Hobgoblins. That's where he got the term. Christian is extremely troubled. 
by these things. Hopeful encouraged his brother and said, these troubles and distresses that you go through are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Christian said with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And look at this now. <laughs> and it's great what Bunyan writes here. They both took courage, and the enemy, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of God and his anointed, the enemy was after that as still as a stone. In other words, he didn't make a peep after that. You know, for, for all of us, <clears throat> for all of us, the river awaits us. The river awaits us. You know, the river may be very close for Laurie and for Beth. It may be. God knows. God knows. When we think we know everything, we, we, we have to confess once again. I, I don't know everything, and I can't tell everything is going to happen, but it awaits us. We don't know when, we don't know how, but it awaits us, and may our faith be strong. You know, a great, great teacher whom I love very much, loved very much when he was alive, and whom Steve quotes from time to time said, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. You see the distinction there? We don't know what all is going to be connected with our dying. Well, let's move on. The pilgrims had left their mortal garments behind them in the river. Their mortal garments, their mortality. It doesn't mean that they stood on the shore unclothed. That's a, that'd be a horrible, you know, ridiculous thought. But they left their mortality behind them when they had crossed that river. The shining ones led them by the arms up the mighty hill on which the city stood. The foundation of the city was higher than the clouds. So that must have been a pretty high hill to climb, you know? Did you ever did you have any thoughts of climbing a high hill like that? A high hill? I thought because of something that I had seen in, in another connection when uh, <clears throat> we haven't been there in a few years, <clears throat> but when Helen and I went to Tukalichi, <clears throat> the national headquarters of CBM Ministries, uh, Bear Lodge, where we stayed, which is the highest place on, on that, Bear Lodge wasn't on the top of the mountain. But you had to hike further to get to the top of the mountain. And I did that a couple times. And it wasn't one of those things where you could go straight up, but there were switchbacks. And the reason why that was on my mind was the, on Facebook, they have been showing various posts of various of the volunteers that help out at these various camps with the buildings and with the roads and everything like that. And they made mention of a man 
who made the road to the top of that mountain, and there were nine switchbacks, nine switchbacks. But when Christian and hopeful, and this doesn't say anything, Bunyan doesn't say anything about switchbacks here, just that it's a high mountain, higher than the clouds, and it was no problem at all. No problem at all for them to go up. It was probably like walking on level ground. You are going now to the paradise of God, they're told. You must there receive comfort of all your toil, have joy for all your sorrow, reap what you have sown, wear crowns of gold, enjoy the perpetual sight of the Holy One, enjoy your friends again. What, what blessed prospects these are. And, and lest you be troubled with this, reap what you have sown. You know, we, we have all reaped a number of things when we talk about the sins and all that kind of stuff. This is talking about reaping what you've sown for Christ. Reaping what you've sown for Christ. When he shall come, you shall come with him and sit by him when he judges the nations. A company of the heavenly host came out to meet him. The heavens echoed with the sound of the king's trumpeters. With the city in view and bells ringing to welcome them, they came to the gate. The trumpets and horns. Don, what was it? The Westminster Brass? The 10th Press had, right? Beautiful. You, you heard that a ton of times. A ton of times. A ton of times. And the horns, the, the, you don't even want to call it a horn. You know, the trumpeters sounded. Looking over the gate were Enoch, Moses, Elijah, and others. And they each gave their certificate. When did they get their certificate? When did they get their certificate? It was one of the things that they received at the cross. One of the things that they received at the cross, and remember, remember the tragedy when Christian almost lost his certificate when he fell asleep, uh, uh, and it fell out of his pocket, and he didn't know it, and he went up the rest of the hill, and then discovered he had lost it. But now they turned in their certificate, clothes that shone like gold, gold harps and crowns, these are given to them. Bells rang again for joy. Streets paved with gold. Many in the streets with crowns on their heads and palms in their hands and golden harps to sing praise. Now, all of those things, and you know, when we read in Scripture, when we read in the last chapters of Revelation and, and the prophetic passages foretelling that and all, what, what a thrilling scene that will be. And, and we might think 
And the book would end there, that they enter in, you know, having given their certificates, and enter into all that joy, the sounds of joy, and the, the joyful company and all that. But at the last part, ignorance reappears. Crossing the river without difficulty, with the help of a boatman named Vain Hope. How perceptive. A boatman named Vain Hope took him over. Ascending the hill to the gate all alone, and I imagine this was a labor for him to go up that hill. It wasn't easy going. But he was all alone. There weren't any shining ones to accompany him. And when he asked at the gate what he would have, he answered, uh, I ate and drank in the presence of the king. And he taught in our streets. I was there. You know, it almost, I think, should remind you of the end of uh, Matthew chapter 7. You know, and individuals who will make all kinds of claims. We've done mighty things for him and all that. When asked for his certificate, he had none. No certificate. He is carried by the shining ones. This is at the decree of the Holy One, of God Himself, carried by the shining ones to the door in the side of the hill that He and Hopeful had seen when they were in the delectable <clears throat> mountains and were taken to these places by the shepherds for their uh, encouragement. And they now saw that ignorance was cast into the byway of hell. And Bunyan's Virtually last words in the book are, Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. Can you imagine a more sober way for this book to end? Sober and, and, and maybe the word scary is even the right word to use here. And then, well, let me let me stay on that slide for a minute here. I, I most weeks um, give you a little update of uh, <coughs> of my life on Saturdays when I go on a long bike ride, and uh, one of my hopes is that I will see my friend John the Papaya Man, and virtually every single time that I have gone on a bike ride ever since way back probably October or whatever, I have seen him. And uh, I have written in my journal all, all that transpires in that. And I saw him yesterday when I got up into Tarpon Springs about where his place was. I went a little bit beyond it and then started back. And sure enough, he's coming out because it's time for him to be heading toward the library where when the bells go off at 10 o'clock, he's in the door. So he's coming out, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely honest with you. Uh, it is a mutually happy experience for both of us to see each other. And he always says, hello, Robert. I think one time he called me Bob. But hello, Robert. And shortly into the conversation, and, and this is almost typical of the conversations that we have together, he always says, what are you going to be doing later today or this weekend? And the first thing I said was, well, you know, 
Uh, I have already typed up the lesson for Sunday School, which is our last lesson in our study of Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian and hopeful come to the celestial city. And then I said, you know, the very last sentence in the book tells about a man named Ignorance, whom they had met earlier in the trip, and Ignorance seemed to have all the right answers. He did. And Ignorance thought for sure he was on the way to the celestial city. But he was not. He was not. And I said at the very end of the book, Ignorance crosses the river with the help of a boatman and goes to the gate, has no certificate, and is turned away to hell. And Bunyan says, so I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. Man, a chill should go down our backs when we read that. Show should go down. I don't remember John's exact words when, when I shared that with him. But, but you know, that's what I wanted to share with him yesterday. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, and I don't, I don't know John's heart. I don't. I'm, I'm kind of inclined to think that John has a pretty good knowledge of a lot of these things. And sometimes I'm even inclined to think that John, I'm going to see John in glory. I, I really think so. But God knows in the final analysis. And, and this is not something to mess with. And, and, and I'm not speaking to you all like, like I think there's anybody in here that would fall into the category of ignorance. I, I, I have no, no thought at all of that. But perhaps we all know an individual or more than one individual who would fit into that category of an individual who thinks that he's surely going to end up in heaven. And when it really boils down to it, it will be because he's thinking that or she's thinking that because, you know, their own works in the final analysis are going to get them there. And oh, oh, the horror of the shock at the end to be turned away and turned into hell. That, that, that should cause a shiver to go down our back. You know, I have a couple couple things I want to read to you here. I have my Bible open to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read to you some of what the author of Hebrews wrote. Before he came to the end of the chapter, I'm reading from verse 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice whose words made the hearers beg for no further messages be spoken to them. You know, all that is a, a picture of what took place when God gave, his law, gave the law on Mount Sinai, and all the things that, that were threats to people to not come near that mountain. But he writes further, he says, For they could not endure the, the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then the author goes on to say this, but you have come to Mount Zion. You know how many times in our story uh, the, the characters say that they're heading to Zion? 
That, that's that's the same thing as heading to the city, the celestial city. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When I, when I read those words, I kind of think, well, there's, there's kind of an enumeration of all the individuals that we're going to encounter in heaven, but the greatest of all, the greatest of all by far, is to encounter Jesus. I also brought with me today this little book. I know some of you have this book probably. One of my favorite books. Not, not a very large book. This is The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision. On the title page here, it says, The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. But I have a marker in one of these toward the latter part. It's entitled, Heaven Desired. Again, they're in the form of prayers. Oh, my Lord, may I arrive where means of grace cease and I need no more to fast, pray, weep, watch, be tempted, attending preaching and sacrament, where nothing defiles, where is no grief, sorrow, sin, death, separation, tears, pale face, languid body, aching joints, feeble infancy, decrepit age, peccant humors, pining sickness, gripping fears, consuming cares, where is personal completeness, where the more perfect the sight, the more beautiful the object, the more perfect the appetite, the sweeter the food, the more musical the ear, the more pleasant the melody. The more complete the soul, the more happy its joys, where is full knowledge of thee. Would you believe, and I'm not finished reading this yet, but would you believe, and this is set up in sort of a, a, a poetic style, would you believe, I just came to a period. <laughs> First period I've come to since I started reading here. A whole lot of commas in here and semicolons, you know mega sentence that the Puritans were experts at. The next words. Here, I am an ant. And I view a nest of, and as I view a nest of ants, so dost thou view me and my fellow creatures. But as an ant knows not me, my nature, my thoughts, so here I cannot know thee clearly. But there I shall be near thee, Dwell with my family. Stand in thy presence chamber. Be an heir of thy kingdom as the spouse of Christ, as a member of his body, one with him who is with thee, and exercise all my powers of body and soul in the enjoyment of thee. As praise in the mouth of thy saints is comely, so teach me to exercise this divine gift when I pray, Read, hear, 
see, do in the presence of people and of my enemies as I hope to praise thee eternally hereafter. And so the next slide, which I gave you a peek of a minute ago. There it is. What now, pilgrims? <laughs> what now, pilgrims? So teach me to exercise this divine gift when I pray, read, hear, see, do in the presence of people and of my enemies. So we are going to, moving forward, pray and read and hear and see and do. That, that pretty much encompasses life's involvements for us. How are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? Whatever happened to Christian's wife and the three young boys that he left behind? Actually, I would like to tell you about it. I would. And unless I'm accosted on the way out the door, I think I shall begin doing that next week. Part two. Now, what does that mean? That means that some of you, and I know we have several different uh, versions, uh, copies, uh, editions of Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have part two. There it is. Part two is in mine here. There it is. About halfway through with a picture of Christiana and three boys and somebody else. I wonder who that might be. Another lady. Um, some of you do not have that in there. So you might have to find a second volume, which is only Pilgrim's Progress 2. I, I, I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed doing this and how much I love this book. And it blows my mind to think that Spurgeon read it a hundred times. At least a hundred times. That's what he said. You know? But there is so much in this that is eye-opening. I mean, eye-opening big time. But the biggest one is what we see in the last part of this. And, uh, you know, I hope that, that really impresses John's mind, my friend John the Papaya Man, as he thinks about that about the things that we talk about and the, the verses that I give to him every week. Anybody have any anything to say before we close in prayer? And uh, I am closing in prayer five minutes early here, which you can mark down on your calendar or something absolutely remarkable. <laughs> but it happens. <laughs> Not very often, but it happens. Okay. Now, I would say this to you. I think I see maybe three cookies in that little bin over there here, guys. I don't want any mad scramble over there. But you will be making a big mistake if those three cookies, or two, or even one, are left in there without you testing, take, tasting them. Very good. And Tootsie, thank you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today, and we thank you, Lord, for, for your word. Lord, your word is what inspired John Bunyan to write, even while he was a prisoner, this amazing allegory of the journey of one man from the city of destruction to the celestial city. 
Lord, I, I cannot imagine how many people over the centuries, and it's been a couple centuries now since it was written, can't imagine how many people have really been affected by this. Some very intentionally so, as they've studied it in Sunday school classes and youth groups and, and other such things. But some, as they've just studied it merely as a book of literature, perhaps in college classes or other places. And Lord, as, as Bunyan was so saturated with Scripture himself, I pray that, that the truths of Scripture would continue to affect people so that they might live their life with the absolute assurance that when life is over, they are going to be welcomed into the celestial city. And for those people to know that without going to the cross, they will be turned away. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.